Hey to all you fish enthusiasts out there, whether you're an avid angler or just curious about fish, we'd like to welcome you to Fish of the Week. It's Monday, November 8th, 2021. We're excited to talk about all the fish. I'm Katrina Liebeck with the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service in Alaska. And I'm Guy Yero, the freshest face in the Eastern Iowa, Western Illinois chestnut harvesting game. We are talking about humpback whitefish today, and our guest is Travis David, who's an environmental educator at Tetland National Wildlife Refuge in Alaska. So welcome, Travis. Oh, thank you for having me on. So we've covered she-fish, we've covered Bering Cisco, also in the whitefish family. So we'd love it if you could kind of, you know, describe what this fish looks like. So if we were to have this fish in hand, what would it look like? How big would it be? So it would be bigger than a least Cisco smaller than a she fish somewhere right in the middle there it also has a distinctive hump behind its head and that's why it gets the name humpback whitefish but it, it very similarly looks like other whitefish that you have there's not much of a difference in characteristics other than that that hump on the back and then the downturned mouth because it, it's a benthic feeder so it feeds on the, the bottom in its juvenile stages, it's mostly zooplankton, bugs, things like that, that it's eating as it's small in its juvenile stage. But once it gets like four years old and then into its fifth year after its first spawn, it they start going to different habitats. So they move towards lakes that have an abundance of snails and mollusks down in the bottom. So they're filling that kind of bottom niche are there other whitefish present where these guys are located no the interesting thing the fact about the upper tanana area and part of the lower tanana area is that they don't really interrelate with other whitefish they're pretty contained here if you look into alaska on a map and you're looking at the canadian border almost all water sources east closer to the Canadian border are like self-contained fish. They, they never go, they never go to the ocean. The only time that they ever go down towards the Yukon would be in juvenile stage between one and four years old. And then they'll move back upstream back to their natal birthplace. And then that's where they do their first spawn, which is in the Shoshana and then the Besna River. And then after that, it's all mature. If we're talking about Tetlin Refuge, could you just describe the landscape first a little bit, what it looks like? So we've got that kind of picture of what this fish might look like if we had it in hand, but what does it actually look like to be in this place? The refuge is directly south of the Alaska Highway, um, and the refuge goes almost all the way up towards Shoshana and Nebesna Glaciers. And those two glaciers are what feed the Shoshana and the Nebesna River. And then those rivers dump into the Tanana. And then the Tanana goes to the Yukon. And the spawning areas for humpback whitefish are directly right there in the Shoshana and the Besna rivers because they spawn in very specific spots, swift flowing and gravel bedded rivers, right? And that's where the eggs overwinter at. And then spring comes, the Shoshana, the Besna glaciers melt and increases the swift flow. And then the larvae hatch. And then they get pushed out down the Tanana to the Yukon. And then they come back to their natal birthplace. The water is very dark, turbulent, I guess, water. It would be very hard to see 
And one of the cool things about humpback whitefish, especially in their spawning, is that when they start to spawn, they have these little tubulars that grow on the side of their heads and part of their scales. Cool. Males have more pronounced, these little, like imagine pimples, I guess, mm -hmm. but they grow on the sides of their heads and stuff. And one of the speculations about why they do that is that they can rub up against each other to see if one's a male or a female. Then they know when you can spawn or who you can spawn with. What's the fishing situation around the refuge? Like, how can folks go fishing? What's What are some of the typical methods people are using? There's a lot of gill netting. And these are usually done around family events, too, or cultural events. Humpback whitefish is, like, very high on our Athabascan food chain. It's one of the main resources that we use for thousands of years. And we... We still do it now to a great degree, and we, we've been pretty good at getting that to be surrounded with all of our culture camps and all of our family activities. Rod and reel is extremely hard. There's no, well, I haven't seen it yet where someone was successful at doing that. You need like a snail or something. Yeah. <laughs> Even some employees here at Taylor Nashville Wildlife Refuge are like, I'm going to do it one day. Mm -hmm. And, you know. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like a challenge. Yeah. <laughs> and so we've been doing that for a long time. July and June are about when we, we start doing our uh, subsistence for white humpback whitefish. So Tetlin, Northway, Tanacross, Metasta, you know, all, the, all those areas. That's because once they're done feeding in their, their lake habitat, they'll start moving towards the river. Once that starts happening, that's like a prime time to get them. Have you seen any changes over the years? There was some concerns about the size of the whitefish. As far as how big they can get, they can get from 16 to over 20 inches in length. And so in the past, especially with the Brandy Brown, the fish biologist, he was concerned about communities discussing whether or not their size had changed. And one of the things that he had found out was that either it's the population density within it, like they've grown, they've become into larger groups. So then their growth size kind of shrank a little bit. Or another hypothesis is that there's something going, something different happening downstream while they're juveniles. But there has been a slight decrease in overall size. I, I know in other populations, such as the Atlantic cod, you've seen d decreases in the average size because of selective harvest of larger individuals. When you guys harvest these fish, do people selectively choose the bigger fish or are all size classes kind of picked out? I don't see any selectiveness about it. I mean, if you're fishing with a gill net, especially, you're not taking out, throwing the smaller ones out and then picking out the good ones, we just take them all. And so the difference, I guess, being that selective would be more like if you could catch them in a selective way. But I don't see that really. You guys have like a fish camp or what's the, what's the setup for the family kind of event and what's it like? It's like hundreds of people together. Oh, wow. And they come from the communities. 
these locations are, are connected to our history and our past for where we used to have uh, residents, right? Where our ancestors used to go to in order to get those fish. And sometimes it's, if we get like hundreds of people, children, and, and we get visitors and we get people that come there and hang out with us for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, and then we go back home after that, get our harvest. But this is like every single year. That's why I had such a huge interest in humpback whitefish and their life cycle, and especially like where their juveniles grow up at, because that, that would be important to us upstream, right? Yeah. What's happening downstream affects whether or not the whitefish grow up healthy. Are the youngins able to get in on this, or do you have to wait till you're a certain age before you can finally participate in it? sort of like a rite of passage thing? A lot of the younger people are encouraged to do this. Um, they need to get out there, you know, lift up the net, take the fish out, bring it up to the people who are, who are going to be cutting it on shore. They're also encouraged to help with the whole process of cutting it, hanging it. It's a very holistic process of all the way through it. And, and you, you're going to, you're going to be part of every aspect of this. And as growing up, that's like a really high expectation that children should do that and participate in that. There's also rules around like the culture camp and children getting too close to the water because the vibration or disturbed fish. I think I was around 12 years old. We were playing around. We started doing like a, a relay race or whatever, right next to the water. And my grandmother, my uncle and them were there. They basically yelled at me and told me, stop doing that. And then they sat down and explained why they shouldn't be playing near the water. And they, they talked about the fish and they talked about disturbing them as they're traveling. And it, that kind of gave me a different light on, on that. But that was a good lesson for me as far as being in the culture camp area and knowing those rules and understanding them. It was a good memory. As far as it being children being involved it, it it's mandatory yeah right on so i know the refuge does environmental education and that sounds like it's kind of a core part of your job are you also running culture camps through the refuge and if so what does that look like yeah we we haven't structured anything that's like as engrossing as the culture camps are but we do actively go out and we stay with the culture camp so we'll be out there for a week or so with them. We'll do little classes here and there. We'll go out fishing with them. We'll do things actively with the community. And I think they like that. It's needed. And we've been doing that for quite a long time. What are some of the preferred methods to prepare these fish for eating? And do you have any favorite recipes or are there any favorite kind of ways to eat these fish in this area of the state? So... The name for the fish in Upper Athabascan is thlung. And once we catch our thlung, we uh, we take it and we cut it, basically in a way to where the fillets kind of flip out on opposite ends, right? And then we can hang it. We dry it for a couple of days. You can smoke it for a couple of days. And then you can cook it right directly onto a fire. Or you can dry it so then you can preserve it for a longer period of time. And it's, it's one of my favorite ways to eat it. But I also do like baking them. And that that's like the modern take on it. 
So there's so many ways to do that. You can bake it. You can make a soup out of it, a Hungarian soup. You can dice it up and turn it into fish sticks. You can fry it in a pan. Onions are really good with them, just as a tip. There's so many ways to do it. I probably sound like Forrest Gump by the time I was done. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to do a little bit about Forrest Gump, but I didn't. I kind of messed it up. Yeah. (laughs) If you want to take it again, just list off all the different ways to do whitefish. I I think that'd be hilarious. So Travis, how do you like to eat whitefish? What are some different ways? Oh, I like to boil them. I like to fry them. I like to... (laughs) Chop them up into pieces. I like to hang them in the smokehouse. I like all kinds of whitefish, you know. (laughs) I love it. That was amazing. So when you fillet these fish, what is the anatomy of the hump? Like, are the vertebrae going up into it? Or is it just like a muscle or fatty? What's kind of the, what's it like? It's like like a fatty meat part of it. Is it good? Yeah, yeah. It's um, especially when we prepare it for drying, and when we prepare it for cutting it all up, it's like very. You have to be very particular about that that chunk of meat, where you have to be able you have to cut it up so then the air can get inside of it. Um, if you don't, then you're going to have issues with rotting and whatnot happening while it's hanging in the smokehouse. How do they compare to some of the other species I've had? She fish before and it was really good like is it a similar color of filet and i guess is the flavor any different given that they're eating off the benthos a little bit more yeah i would think that the flavor would be different one of the delicacies in athabasca culture too is to take some of the stomach intestines and then frying that up because then you can get that snail with it it's not everyone's cup of tea but you should come down and taste one yeah (laughs) i like snails athabasca and escargot when you make your dry fish, are you using a brine? Uh, you can uh, if you want to, especially the, the brine helps, especially if you're catching fish and then you're transporting it somewhere else. But you can brine it. You can you can add things to it. But usually if we're like at a culture camp or something else, it's it just goes straight into the smokehouse. There's no no brine. Could you, in a little bit more detail, describe the tools and techniques used to prepare these dry fish or smoke fish? Yeah. So we usually use like a, we call them just a fish knife, but they, they're pretty similar to what a ulu kind of looks like. It's, it's usually just a crescent shaped blade on it that goes up into a handle that fits in the base of your palm. So then that knife gives you a nice long cutting surface, but it's also very efficient at cleaning scales and getting the slime off the outside of the fish. Each family would have its own its own smokehouse, and it's basically just a frame, a wooden frame that has a cover on the top and cover on the sides, and then poles that go across a little bit above head height, right? Because you're going to have to be able to flip and change those fish every single day and clean the poles, flip them. So the, the process of doing that At least two times a day, they all need to be flipped around. So you need the whole family to help out in the whole process, right? You need someone going to get it. You need somebody to bring up the whole bucket, which might be like 50 fish at a time, and then cutting all of them and then putting them in the smokehouse 
and then somebody monitoring and flipping and cleaning the smokehouse. And so this process is like a, is a family event. Do scavengers ever try and get in and take the fish? And are there any deterrents that can be used? It all depends on that in, in the construction of it, how you cover up your base of your, your smokehouse matters of whether or not little, little critters will get in there or not because like small pieces of the fish will fall under the ground. So what they do is they, they put out grass all on the base of the smokehouse. So then some of the fat and some smaller pieces of the meat might fall down, but then they could easily clean it out the grass and then throw out the grass and then change it again. The, the smoke is already a deterrent, right? Like when, the, when it fills up with smoke, you don't get, you get zero flies, nothing gets in there. Animals generally stay away from that little zone there. Can you describe the the smell, Travis? It, it seems like that would be a really excellent area to walk through and kind of be actually smelling it in real time. Yeah. So especially when I'm in, going to culture camps, even as just a small family unit of like me, my wife and kids might go by ourselves even in that circumstance, it just feels like I'm actively engaged with like nature around me. I got the smell of wood around me. I got fish around me. I've got family around me. I've got, I'm actively participating in this. And it, that feeling of just that community, because you're not very far away from, you know, another family smokehouse. They're just right next door. You can go over and visit someone else's smokehouse and sit down with them and drink tea and 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 then go to another one and then go play with the kids after that. Um, so you're you're connected a lot more that way. And it's nice just to get away for a couple of weeks. Is there anything else you'd like to tell folks listening about this place or these fish or just the refuge or anything? As far as the uh, humpback whitefish go, I, I just want to put out the life history of them and where they go and what they do and where they spawn, how they travel. I think it's really important for future generations to also understand that, especially where where their juveniles grow up. That resource there is, is of high value to the upper Tanana region. And I just want to express that what we've learned today of whitefish will, will help sustain them in the future. Well, thanks again, Travis, for joining us. This has been an amazing conversation about the humpback whitefish, and just thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. All right, everybody. We hope you get out there and enjoy all the fish, and we hope you enjoyed learning about the humpback whitefish. Thanks for listening to Fish of the Week. My name is Katrina Liebick, and my co-host is Guy Iroh. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, produced and story edited by Charlotte Moore, production management by Gabriella Montaguin, post-production by Alex Brower. Fish of the Week is a production of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, Alaska Region, Office of External Affairs. As the service reflects on 150 years of fisheries conservation, we honor, thank, and celebrate the whole community, individuals, tribes, the state of Alaska, our sister agencies, fish enthusiasts, scientists, and others who have elevated our understanding and love as people and professionals of all the fish.